Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. I'm releasing two interviews of Graham White, who passed away in March this year. This is interview number one. I've ad-libbed this introduction from Tom Theobald, who wrote a lovely eulogy for Graham. Graham was one of the great warriors in the battle against neonicotinoids and other forever poisons. He had an encyclopedic mind and a classical education and could articulate the abuse of power of the chemical industry and our agriculture like no other. Graham was in fierce battle, exposing the perversion of the EPA and the poison corporations. He knew all the players going back a hundred years, both in the U.S., in the U.K., and extensively in the E.U. He introduced me to so many wonderful people. He knew everyone. He was an invaluable and irreplaceable resource in the fight against these criminal corporations who grow our food. In these interviews, Graham talks about how the poison industries came to own the American, German, and British beekeeping associations, effectively silencing any beekeepers who wanted to stand up to the poison in our food. He also discusses the entomology departments of public universities and explains why they bow to chemical interests in industrial conventional farming. Please enjoy. Thank you, Graham, so much for speaking with me today. Um, just a, a side note, I met Graham in California. He was on a trip uh, covering uh, several areas of the state, and I was introduced to him by a friend, a fellow beekeeper and activist, and got to spend almost a day with Graham, and it was actually really important. Uh, it was pivotal for me. I learned a lot. Graham is an encyclopedia, a wealth of information about not only systemic poisons like neonics and fungicides, but also about how the industry works, how the chemical industry has created an infrastructure in pretty much everything around the world globally. So um, welcome, Graham, and thank you. Well, a pleasure to be here. And um, I remember that I, I was coming over to California to give a, a slideshow talk about John Muir, because I've written a lot of books about John Muir, and he's my great environmental education hero and the idea was that because I was that you know the people flying me over were paying for the flight I thought well I should try and do my bit for the beekeepers because I'm a beekeeper while I'm there it wasn't going to cost any more and um, Susan Kegley invited me to give a podcast to beekeepers in America uh, and explain what the situation was in Europe with regard to mass bee deaths and systemic pesticides. That's why I was there. It was the Pesticide Action Research Center, which Susan was running. and um, Pesticide Research Institute, right, in Berkeley. Sorry, yeah. Uh, and it was lovely to be in Berkeley because um, she took me out shopping for, I think we had halibut, and uh, she gave us a lovely dinner. And then, and then you took me off to meet the Marin beekeepers that evening, which was equally interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I'll never forget that meeting. Um, yeah, and I, I also was, uh, Susan was doing something and she couldn't drive you around and I drove you around. I don't remember where we went, but it was just one of those conversations that sunk deep. But yeah, let's talk about that Marin Beekeepers Association meeting. I, I still laugh about that night. <laughs> 
Yeah, we went, we, it was my first time in an elk lodge. There was this amazing log cabin about 200 feet long with American Legion flags all over the inside and, and, and some lovely people. But there were like 150 beekeepers there from all over that part of Marin and California. And um, the state beekeeping advisor, whose name was Eric Musson, was up on the stage give, giving a, a talk about uh, what was going on with bees. And, uh, and I can't remember the exact year now. It was about, it must have been about 2012 or something like that. But yeah, it was about we six were, years ago, five, six years ago. We were right in the middle of an epidemic of millions and millions of bee colony deaths in America, and exactly same in Britain and Europe, all the 28 countries of Europe. And uh, the bee advisor for California didn't mention the word pesticides once <laughs> in an hour and a half talk. So I got right. up at the end and I said, this is rather interesting. I said, um, you've had 3 million bee colonies die in the last two years, and you've had 20 million bee colonies die in the last 20 years. And you've never mentioned the word pesticides. You've never mentioned the word neonicotinoids, which is in every bee magazine I read. And it's on the desk of every single scientist in Europe and every legislator. And he, he sort of made all kinds of excuses, but um, he didn't really answer the question. And then afterwards, he took me outside and he, and he in an extremely patronizing way, said, you just don't understand we need those pesticides. They're good for us. Society needs pesticides. And, and in this flash of insight, I realized this man isn't the state beekeeping advisor. He's the state pesticide defender. Yeah. And I realized that the control of the entire uh, system, uh, you know, from like the, 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 what do they call the state agricultural colleges to the state bee advisors, everybody who could be in a position to help beekeepers has been co-opted. They've been taken over. They've been suborned to be on the side of the big ag pesticide companies. Right. And why would it be otherwise? Why would the pesticide industry have allowed any um, any beekeepers to gain strength and a voice? Why wouldn't they have controlled the dialogue from the very beginning? Well, they have. And, and in fact, it, it's an interesting uh, thing to dwell on a little bit because most people in even in my country don't know that Bayer who pioneered these systemic insecticides they didn't invent them that these were invented by the Shell Oil Company in in about 1984 and Shell I'm I we don't know because no one's ever come clean about this or said anything but Shell decided not to use them and what I infer from that is that Shell knew they'd invented something eight to 8,000 times more toxic than DDT, the, the most powerful poison on the planet. This was a true revolution in pesticides because these are systemic. They were the first pesticides that are inside the plants, not on them. And they're infinitely more poisonous than anything that had ever been invented before. The in comparison to DDT, um, they're between eight and 11,000 times more toxic to life than was DDT. And DDT was pretty toxic. So um, one way of visualizing that is that uh, most poisons kill at parts per million. In other words, you, you take some poison, you put it in a mixture which is 
say five or 10 or 20 parts per million, and that kills the bee or the butterfly or whatever. These poisons kill at parts per billion. That's by a factor of a thousand more toxic. So if you take three teaspoonfuls of neonicotinoids and you put them in an Olympic-sized swimming pool containing 1,000 metric tons of water, that dilution, which is about three parts per billion, will kill any insect that comes into contact with it. So I think I'm, you can only read between the lines. I, I, we don't know what went on in private discussions, but I think Bayer heard about this and they went to see Shell and Shell said, well, we've invented this wonderful poison and it's got this amazing mode of action, but there's no market for it. We can't find a use for it because it'll kill everything. It'll kill all the insects, all the birds, all the fish, all the amphibians, everything. So it would just be like um, unleashing Pandora's box. And Bayer, in their very knowing way, must have gone away and talked about this and said, but hang on, we're going to make a billion dollars a year in America alone. That's more money than anyone has ever made from any industrial chemical. And I think they were looking at global sales of five billion a year. And so they said, well, you leave that to us. We, we'll come up with a strategy where, despite the fact that it kills everything, we'll, we'll make do. We'll, we'll get along. And I think they went away and I think they said, um, okay, we, first of all, we need a strategy. And, and I think they came up with three, a three-pronged strategy. One was denial. So in other words, when everything starts dying, we just deny it over and over and over and over again. And we have specialists planting articles in newspapers and on the ma in television magazines just saying, whatever's going on, it's not us, nothing to do with us. And we know they did that in France in 1992. They, they first put imidacloprid on the market in France on sunflowers in 1992. And immediately, the French lost a million bee colonies. And France is not a really an amateur beekeeping place. It's, uh, it's organized as industrial cooperatives. A little, each little town will have a cooperative of maybe 20 beekeepers, with a thousand hives each. And that's their life. That's how they make their living. That's their money. So these people were bankrupted. Like in, in a matter of weeks, they were bankrupted. They lost all the honey, went away. All their bees died. They couldn't pay their mortgages. There were actual suicides. A lot of people went crazy. Marriages broke up. It was a, it was a national crisis. Uh, so Bayer's reaction was just to say, nothing to do with us. Move on. So deny. They denied. They completely denied. That went on for several years. And then the French, being the French, they went and uh, appealed to their own government and the Ministry of Agriculture. They thought they were going to get, you know, they thought the government was going to be sympathetic and help them and do the science. And the government turned around and said, we believe Bayer, nothing to do with Bayer. You're on your own. So they then said, being the revolutionary French, right, okay, we'll get, we will find our own researchers in independent universities and we'll raise $2 million and we will pay them to test the crops and these chemicals. And they, they hired a very famous uh, agricultural scientist called uh, Dr. Bonmatin at Montpellier University. And it took, him, it took him a season to do the work. And he had to invent a lot of the techniques because these were revolutionary chemicals that were very hard to detect. And he, and he came, because Bayer had said, 
it is physiologically impossible for this poison to appear in the flowers or the nectar or the pollen of the plants we apply it to. They said it only stays in the sap and the leaves and doesn't go into flowers. Bon Matin tested the flowers and the pollen and the nectar and bingo, there it was. And it was killing bees. So uh, the French beekeepers were able to take Bon Matin's scientific reports and present it to the government and say, here's the evidence. It's true. We lost a million bee colonies. These people are responsible. Take action. And at that point, Bayer sued Professor Bon Matin for, defame, for defaming their product. He was facing millions of dollars worth of fines. Uh, luckily for him, the French beekeepers are a union, and they raised half a million dollars to defend him in court. The judge took less than an hour to throw the case out. He just said, this is rubbish. Your argument is rubbish. This man's science is good. As far as I can see, he's telling the truth. Well, let me say something, too. That's the shot across the bow that um, Bayer did to to warn others, do not do this, do not cross us. Well, that was the other lesson they they wanted to teach people. If you mess with us, we're going to we're really going to hurt you. So anyway, um, so then the French went to the government and said, look, it's true. These poisons are killing the bees. Uh, the honey crop in all of France crashed by 50 percent. Hundreds of businesses went out of business and uh, the government still didn't do anything. So the French, being the French, said, OK, that's the way you want to play. We'll play hardball. So they got 2000 tractors, loaded them up with dead beehives on trailers. They got like 2000, 3000 dead beehives. I think it might have been 10,000, actually. And they drove them down the Champs-Élysées in central Paris at the height <laughs> of the tourist season. And they, threw, perfect. and they heaped them up in enormous piles outside the Ministry of Agriculture and the government offices, and then they set fire to them. <laughs> and, then, and then they parked their tractors at right angles outside the Louvre and the, uh, you know, all the great cathedrals, all the great art galleries, and said, okay, we're not in any hurry. We have no businesses anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll stay here till you do something. So within about two days, the French government gave in and said, okay, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll do something. Get rid of those tractors. And um, they um, appointed what's called the highest level of inquiry that ever happens in France. And it's rarely actually called into action. It's called a Comité Scientifique et Technique, a, te a technical and scientific inquiry. And there were 150 professors from 70 universities appointed. And they looked at all the evidence. And at the end of that, uh, this was in around 1999. This, this took like all this took several years. At the end of 1999, they advised the French government, this poison is killing everything. We advise you to ban it. So in 2000, the French banned the neonicotinoids, and they've never rescinded that ban. So the, the year it came on was 1994. Uh, the French probably started taking action in 1996, and it got banned yeah. in 2000. 2000. Yeah. We need the French here. <laughs> well, they see they're well, they're a bit like the Americans were, you know, what the Americans were in 1775. They they celebrate their revolution every year on Bastille Day. And I know the Americans doing them um, Independence Day, I suppose, but uh, there's still that revolutionary zeal. The, the, the attitude in France, absolutely universal, and you can feel it when you talk to people, is 
these people who call themselves the government, they're our servants. They're not higher than us. They're not, they don't have more, they may think they have more power, but all we have to do is call up the people and they'll march on Paris and within a day, we will depose the government. And we've done it before. And, and remember what happened last time we did it. <laughs> we chopped off we chopped off the king and queen's head and, and 2,000 aristocrats' heads in about six months. Right. That's the way I'm feeling. It's like, where did I put my guillotine? I can't find it. I need it right now. But anyway, this, this tragedy in France, it was just like dom watching dominoes. It then repeated in Holland, Germany, Italy, Britain. It, it got going in Britain about 1999, I think. Um, and it was exactly the same. I mean, if you look from looking at from here, looking back, it's obvious they had a playbook, a strategy. There's a, there's a playbook. That playbook that you speak of was really perfected by the tobacco industry. Deny, deflect, defend. And so you've, you've explained the deny. Tell me about the deflect, because how did that play out with the uh, French government? Because they're the ones that were deflecting for Bayer. Well, the, the, the Bayer's uh, reaction to, you know, their counter, when the, when the French said, Emile Clopin's killing the bees, Bayer said, it's technically impossible, scientifically not possible. It will, you couldn't kill bees if you bathed them in this stuff. That was the first line. And of course, politicians aren't scientists. They, you know, they're looking at these very posh people in big cars and massive offices and million dollar budgets. And they've got all these French beekeepers in berets smoking pipes in dirty tractors, you know, and they and they side with the guys who look like them. So, but but then there were a number of narratives that were spawned out of the poison machine. One was it's bad beekeeping. I think that was the first one. Nothing to do with us. These are lousy beekeepers. They're letting foul brood and strange diseases into their apiaries and that's what's killing the bees and then they said it was uh, and then it, when they did the same thing in britain it was cell phones it's cell phones and mag magnetic lines of energy that are killing the bees and there was dozens and dozens of articles on the television and, and media and magazines and they, they did all these experiments with uh, putting cell phones inside beehives and putting them under electricity pile and that went on for a while and then they came up with the strange parasitic flies. There was a vampire fly, which is so rare. Most entomologists don't even have one in their museum. But suddenly it was this vampire parasite was killing the bees. And then it was, um, then they came up with fungal diseases, which were in fact killing the bees, but we'll go on to that later. Um, so they just had this endless supply of distraction narratives. Climate change, climate change being the ultimate get out. It's climate change, you know, cosmic rays. Well, and going back to the British Beekeepers Association, weren't they taking uh, money from Bayer to be quiet about neonics for several years? Well, this was another strategy. See, I think way back in 84, when they were negotiating to buy the neonics and they realized they had, in effect, an atomic bomb on their hands that was going to kill everything, they said, well, we, we need to neutralize in advance the pot potential sites of resistance. And obviously, if the bees were going to die in enormous numbers, national beekeeping associations and national boards were very, very important targets. Right. Now, when I, I used to be a member of the British Beekeepers Association, and 
just like the French, when when our bees started dying, we thought, well, the bee, you know, the British Beekeeping Association will be our sword and shield. They'll be the knight, they'll be the knight in charming armor. They'll ride to our defense and they'll fight them on the beaches and in the newspapers. They didn't do anything of the kind. They 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 started putting out uh, public relations things saying, oh, the evidence is very very weak. We we know there's no firm evidence that neonics are in any way involved in bee deaths. They held to that line from 1998 till about 2011. They never wavered. And when I joined the beekeepers, I thought, you know, the, the stereotype of what, is, what does a beekeeper look like, you know? Well, they're retired vicars or ministers, you know, they're retired school teachers, they're old country generals who smoke pipes and fish in the stream for fish, you know, and that, that these were the sort of country rural um, stereotypes we had. To my astonishment, I found out that at least three of the board of the British beekeepers all have backgrounds as pesticide research chemists or um, what they called pharmaceutical consultants. There were there were two very powerful people who were pharmaceutical consultants. They weren't remotely the kind of people you expected to be on a beekeeper's board. You know, they were these were industry operators, and and we've never been able to prove it, but we think. I suspect the they started to place the people in the right organizations at the right level well well in advance of the bees dying you know they were already in place so the big crisis with the british beekeepers came when um they you know they have an annual general meeting once a year and a few people maybe 2 or 300 go down to london and or this place where they meet and um they you know various issues are debated and motions are passed and so on. So anyway, in 2004, the Durham beekeepers went down and were, you know, sat in the, in the, in the auditorium looking at the annual accounts. And they said, hang on, hang on, there's 18,000 pounds income here. And it's not clear where it came from. And the British beekeepers were used to getting income in 500 or 1,000 pound lots, you know, not a sudden lump sum of 18,000. So they, they said, where's that from? And, and then they noticed it had been going on for four years. 18,000 so pounds for four years. Four okay. Years. Okay. So, they, so the, 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 the board said, oh, that's nothing. It's just, uh, just a donation. You know, forget about it. Nothing, to, nothing here to look at. And the Durham men said, no, no, no. We want to know. We want to know what this is about. So it turns out that they'd set, and this is without the knowledge of the members, they'd set up a secret company. Not a single member, I mean, there's 50,000 members, not a single member knew that there was a secret trading company had been set up by these pharmaceutical consultants on the board. And that secret company had signed contracts with Bayer, Aventis, which is now called Syngenta, Dow Chemical and BASF, which is another German thing. Right, right. And they had agreed to, what's the word, endorse... I think it was eight pesticides as bee friendly in return for 18,000 pounds a year. So all hell broke loose at this point. And they said, so there was a big meet, you know, there was a, a, a hugely uh, contentious meeting, people shouting at each other and so on. And they said, this is disgraceful. If you'd, if you'd asked the 50,000 members of our association, would we agree to sign away our birthright for 18,000 pounds a year to pesticide we would never have done it. So then what happened was the, uh, because it's an AGM, the board said, well, it's very simple. We, we've signed a contract 
It's a secret contract, and you're not allowed to see the terms of it. Nobody is allowed to see the terms of it. But we've basically, we're going to get £18,000 a year for 10 years, from 2000 to 2010, and we cannot break the contract. So if you think we've done wrong, you either have to sack us all now, in which case the organization ceases to exist right now. The whole You, you deselect the board, it's all over, it stops now. Or you just accept that we, you trust us that we're doing the best for the organization and we carry on taking the money and saying that these eight pesticides are good for bees. Now, they weren't neonicotinoids. They were things like alpha-cypermethrin and um, I can't remember the other. They were, they, were, they were standard pyrethroids and stuff like that. In a, in a big, big disputed uh, you know, scientific debate later on, a key scientist in the organization proved that every single one of these chemicals was deadly to bees. But the board had endorsed them as bee-friendly. And they'd even allow, anyway, so. So that, what year was this? Tell me again, what year was this? Was, I think that was in 2004 that began. And hundreds of people like me started to kick up a fuss and we were mostly, back, first we were banned from the online forums for even raising the issue. And we noticed that as soon as we started to discuss it on an online forum, what, what felt like a completely professional uh, activist would turn up to oppose us and would just begin taking us apart. And it, again, we believe that this could be, could this be professional online activists who were being paid by the pesticide corporations? I'm absolutely convinced that they were because they- Well, let me just stop you with that. Your incredulu incredulity- just now like could this be i go back to this one thought why wouldn't it be like instead of asking could it be say why wouldn't it be because this stuff has been think tanked these guys have more money than anybody and they knew what they were doing early early on they had to get control of the narrative and they the only best way to do that is through the beekeeper associations and the boards and well, if you're earning a thousand million dollars a year in Europe alone, and another thousand million a year in America, what proportion of that would you commit to the defense of your product? And I would say it's in the tens of millions at least. So anyway, so all around the world, by the way, not just. So the the end of that was not that the board were unseated, but I was driven out of the British Beekeepers Association. Phil Chandler, who's the barefoot beekeeper, a famous guy, he was driven out. And hundreds of other people who had the sense to know what was going on were literally drummed out of the organization, banned. And, um, and we, we, went, we became independent guerrilla fighters, as it were. But exactly the same thing happened in Germany. Uh, it happened even on a more corrupt scale there. They what their strategy there was, they, they said, oh, we're really sorry your bees are all dying. I don't think it's anything to do with us. But um, we're going to spend some millions of dollars. We're going to set up this wonderful organization called the German Bee Monitoring Project. And it's going to involve Bayer and the German government. And the, they have bee institutes in every state of Germany, uh, a bit like your, like your ag colleges, but purely for bees. So, so the, the German professional beekeepers said, okay, they seem to be sincere, we'll go along to these meetings. And, and they found they were going along to like 10 conferences a year. And um, they all agreed to monitor their bees and feedback data on how many colonies died. So they, you know, they, were, they suddenly found they were spending like days per week 
helping Bayer and the German government try to understand why the bees were dying. And this went on for four years. And at the end of it, uh, Walter Heifacher, who's the leader of the German professional beekeepers, he, he just said that this terrible feeling began to come over me that we'd, we'd committed four years, thousands of beekeepers had committed four years of their lives, providing all this data, all this information. And then when they began to look at the methodology, they said, hang on, you're, you're asking us for all these bee deaths and all that, but you, you haven't mentioned pesticides. And you haven't, you haven't asked us what crops the bees were feeding on. And it gradually dawned on that this whole thing was like the tar baby in Br'er Rabbit. It was just something that as soon as you touched it, you stuck to it. And then you added, you know, you touched it somewhere else and that stuck. And it, it, it was meant to keep you trapped and talking. But so what never were they talking? What, what were they looking at if they weren't looking at pesticides? What were they looking at? Oh, they were looking at varroa mites. They were looking at uh, strange diseases, funguses. They never came to any real conclusions that it wasn't meant to come to any conclusions. So on the, anyway, there was the... So that's the this distraction tactic you're talking about. So there's the deny, distract. That's the distraction. Engage people in meaningless, endless discussions, conferences, monitoring schemes, and so on. And I'm absolutely convinced that the... Um, the, the bee monitoring project in America is a, is a direct child of the German one that the Germans refused to you're, call. You're talking about bee-informed partnership. Bee-informed partnership yeah, has... It's exactly the same. It monitors one thing, and that one thing isn't pesticides. <laughs> yeah, and, and they did a similar thing in Italy and Spain and Holland. They, they, it's a model. They just rolled it out. And um, so... Walter Heifecker, in the middle of this conference, I mean, this is a true story. They arrived for this big national conference. It was going to start 10 in the morning, go on for two days. And as they walked in, Bayer were releasing the press release on the results of the conference. And the conference hadn't happened. And, and Walter just stood up and made a speech and he said, that's it. This is a completely corrupt you know, system. You're not you're not trying to find out what's killing the bees. You know what's killing the bees. It's your pesticides. This has been designed to sap our energy, confuse us, and get us fighting each other. Yeah, polarization works. It's a great tool. And they said, from, th from this moment on, we will not cooperate. We will fight you. And they walked out, and they began fighting on that day. And about eight years later, neonicotinoids were banned in all of Europe, in all 28 countries. And it was the Germans and the French who led that fight. Yeah. So they're very, very brave and wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Are they still running um, the um, the beekeeper uh, association meetings, uh, Bayer? I think it's so discredited it just collapsed. But they then brought out this traveling circus called Bayer Bee Care, which now travels all over America and everywhere. And it is like a... Uh, one of these, what do they call them in America? A Chautauqua. It's like a born again Christian rally where they have. Oh, you're talking about like a tent revival. A tent yeah. revival, yeah. So it travels around and they have a million dollar wagon with beautiful pictures of bees and lovely fluffy toys for the children to answer. And they basically said, But we love the bee. Bayer loves the bees. We just love them. Would you like to buy some poison? 
Right. <laughs> poison for your garden. Here you go. Right at this big box store. You can buy any poison that should be that any anybody else is licensed and has to wear a full hazmat suit. But you can go ahead and spray that all over your yard. The big picture is they trialed it in France, then they rolled it out in Germany and then and in Italy and Spain and in Britain and in America, and then it went into India, and then they put it into Argentina, and finally it's shown up in uh, Australia. It, every single country in the world, apart from tropical Africa, I think, they, they, they rolled it out. And their the, the global vision was for absolute global domination. And they, the, the, the central idea was that in the past, pesticides were used in a very small way as a reaction to a, a sudden increase in aphids or you know beetles or worms that were attacking a crop but th but there's there's not that much money in that so what they wanted was they wanted universal prophylactic application of pesticides in other words Explain what that means prophylactic okay. so prophylactic means it's an insurance policy you don't wait for the pest to arrive even if there's never been any pests seen on these crops in decades you apply the pesticides on a rigorous schedule, and um, and that means the market expands by hundreds of times. So the, the market is now billions and billions and billions of dollars all over the world. And the so follow the money. That's how it makes sense. Is just to use this product all the time. Don't wait for there to be a problem. Just use it before there's a problem. And so then everybody has. And you said this before. You they've normalized the use of poison. It, it's the normalization of poison, absolutely. And, 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 the, and the second thing was to take away all elements of choice. So in the past, a farmer was planting wheat and he wouldn't have put any pesticide on the wheat and he would have planted the wheat and then he would have waited. And if he saw a problem occurring, he would have gone and bought some pesticide and maybe applied it in one corner of his field and so on and so on. They, they took the element of choice away by saying, ah, we will pre-coat the seed so that you can't buy seed that isn't already treated. So the farmer just says, I need enough wheat to plant a thousand acres. And he rings up the, uh, the seed supplier and they say, yeah, well, we got a medicloprid treated seed. And he says, well, I'm not sure I want that. And they, well, that's all we got because that's our contract with Bayer. So he has to take it. So now it's not a farmer's decision. It's, a seed company with Bayer's decision. And in fact, Bayer and Monsanto set out to acquire every seed company in America. And there are now something like six major seed suppliers in America, whereas there used to be 10,000 or something. So the other, the other clever strategy they came up with was, uh, let's say the farmer's resistant and says, well, I, I still don't want, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find the last seed supplier who doesn't supply pesticide coated seed. And then they would say, ah, if you do that, you can't get crop insurance. So they took over the crop insurance industry. Well, I don't know, I don't know much about how that works, but essentially, if you follow the advice of the corporations and you always use pesticide on your seeds, then they offer you really cheap insurance on that crop. And if that crop fails, you get compensation. If you didn't put the poison on the seed and you didn't buy it from them, They'll say, sorry, you don't have any insurance. You've lost your entire crop. So that's just financial in intimidation. Well, it's controlling the insurance market. It's a, it, everything's going towards a monopoly. 
they supply the seed, they supply the pesticide, they coat the seed, and they supply the agronomist who tells you what pesticide to apply at which day in the crop cycle. So, um, yeah, I know you had a really nice talk with Dave Goulson, and Dave Goulson lives in his universities in the middle of farm country in Sussex. And he just saw this big field of oilseed rape next to his office, and he knew the farmer, and they got on well. And he asked him, "Would you, hey, would you tell me uh, every pesticide you apply and when you do it? And the farmer didn't think that was controversial in any way, and he said, sure. So when he handed him the sheet of A4 paper, it had 25 different pesticide applications in one season. Oh, God. And, and Dave, I think, was astonished. And he said, hang on, there's like nine insecticides, eight fungicides, three herbicides, and a couple of insect growth regulators here. And they're going in in one single season. It's wave after wave after wave after wave of poison. And he said, is this normal? And he said, oh, absolutely standard. Yeah, this is happening on every single field in Britain, uh, whether it's oilseed rape, what you call canola, or wheat, or barley, or oats, or potatoes. It's, it's clockwork. It's standard operating procedure. The, the farmer has no decisions to take. Otherwise, he loses his insurance or insurance won't pay. Or he loses insurance. Or, and, and he's not an agronomist. He's not a, an expert in these matters. So a lot, of, a lot of large farms can't afford to employ an agronomist. There's an agronomist in an office, you know, in the middle of a large country district, and he'll, he will contract to tell you what pesticides need to be applied to your particular crop in that area. So in the United States, is the equivalent of an agronomist uh, someone from the Extension, the Extension Universities? I think it, it, I sounds think it like is, sounds like that's yes. the same thing. Because the Extension Universities are pro, like, just use every pesticide you can. Well, the Extension Universities, are one of their main incomes is from training and certifying people to spray or apply seed coatings to different crops. So in order to be a farmer in, say, Ohio, you have to have a spray license, and you can only get that spray license if you go to your local ag college. They charge you a fee, a small fee, to train you. They certify you. And that's it. You're qualified. You can now go and apply whatever. It's vertical integration from, from seed. It's within every in infrastructure, too. So it's within the insurance. It's within the education. It's within the licensing. So on this note, I feel the need to take a good news break. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I saw you found a hedgehog. That's the cutest little thing. I've never seen a hedgehog. Oh, I do this every year. Uh, I, I found four. Uh, a couple of years ago, I found four babies, really small, in the palm of your hand. And they were walking along a roadside in a beautiful area on a farm, and, but in broad daylight. And they shouldn't be out in broad daylight. And the mother was not there. And these were small hoglets, we call them. So I, um, I stopped the car, and they didn't run away, and they, looked, they were not in good shape. So I picked them up and stuck them in the car, and then I took them home and I fed them. You feed them dog food, and they ate like horses. You know, they ate all this dog. Food. Oh yeah, very noisy eaters. They mainly eat beetles and worms in the in the wild, and slug, slugs and snails. They're masters of eating slugs and snails. Good. So they're good. They're good for a farm too. Oh, they're fantastic. Except the farmers poison them because the farmers don't like natural uh, solutions. So the farmers 
use a poison called metaldehyde for slug pellets. Mm. All right, let's keep this on a good news note. Don't tell me anything bad right now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Lie to me. <laughs> I went back and I found the mother and she was a she was a skeleton at the side of the road. So she'd been dead a week and um, it was high summer. And uh, so they were with me for about, um, I had them about two months. And then when they weighed about a kilo each, I let them go in the autumn and they're in, not far from my house. So I'm hoping they're breeding out there now. But um I'll take some photographs. There's a lovely photograph of, I had some friends here earlier on with their little granddaughter and their other granddaughter, who was about six at the time, who never really, she's very quite, she's shy in a sort of very assertive way. She, she doesn't give you her friendliness naturally. Do you know what I mean? She's distrustful of strangers. So they brought her to see me and I told her I had some hedgehogs. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And we sat her down. And we put these four hedgehogs in her lap and we couldn't communicate with her for the next 30 minutes. She just, she couldn't accept any <laughs> incoming communication. She was just, oh, look at these. <laughs> she was in ecstasy. That's awesome. She was just in ecstasy. <laughs> well, and maybe, you know, another environmentalist is born. Oh, I'm sure. Well, those are the kind of, should give children I mean, absolutely yeah yeah to connect with nature and i th i think that that's where um you know the next generation needs to they need to connect with nature like big time absolutely every generation needs to connect with nature john Muir said if you don't connect with nature on a daily basis you will become sick john Muir said that he didn't say you might become sick he said this is unavoidable if you do not connect with nature on a daily basis, you, your illness might be physical, it may be mental, it may be spiritual, but you will become unbalanced and sick. Well, and maybe that explains a CEO of these big corporations and the people that are directing and the people that are taking money and the people that are taking influence. Maybe that explains the difference between you and me and them, because there's no amount of money I would take or influence to destroy something. I couldn't. And there's something in me that won't. And I don't know, maybe it's the, um, it's the nature that I've already experienced and the meaning that that has for me. And I know you have it too. So maybe that's the difference. Maybe they just don't connect and never did connect with nature at a really young age. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think they just, um, I think they just like riding around in big black limousines and going to strip <laughs> joints and having lap, lap dances with. Okay, so maybe it's just that. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Election. No, I've not seen that. Have you ever seen Election? It's a great film about politics and there's a girl in it. Her name's Tracy Flick and she's going to the top and it's just crazy. And yeah, there's there's a disconnect in there and she just wants to be in the big cars. I've seen Charlie Wilson's War with um Charlie Wilson's War with um Tom Tom Hank and uh, oh you have to see it. Philip Seymour Philip Seymour Hoffman is that was his last film I think. He was wonderful in that. But but this is what the um you remember the human potential movement in California with Jerry Brown when all these people were going down to uh, Esalen. Esalen was trying to do that. Esalen thought, if we can only get these politicians out of their helicopters, take them all down to Esalen, 
give them marijuana and mescaline and fuck their brains out in a hot spring, <laughs> they'll become human. And Somebody had to take that on with Jerry Brown? <laughs> That woman is a saint. Well, he was quite happy. I think he was one of the leaders, but um, they did take all these people like Bill Gates and... Um, oh, God. But, I mean, they they got to mingle with James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. Their, their idea was to humanize them, and uh, it, it worked to some extent. It didn't really work, but it was a time of great optimism. It must have been a long time ago. Yeah, I know. In a galaxy far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, I, I'm sorry, it is a bit. It is all a bit negative. This I know, but why? Do, no, it's not your fault. You're just talking about what is. I know, but why? Well, I could talk about why I've spent 20 years defending the bees. You know, I could talk about that for a bit. And let's do that. I want to hear it. By the way, I keep finding um, my hives haven't died, but my queens are not doing well. And I and something that discovered yesterday that really disturbed me was I keep finding hundreds of drones which have died in the act of emerging. They get the they get the head out of the cell, and then they die as if the exertion has killed them. And they they always have their tongue protruding. You know the way bees do in the. So that mirrors my experience last year and this, and I've noticed. So I've only been beekeeping since 2008. You've been beekeeping a lot longer than that. And you're from, you remember the time when queens used to live several years, right? Five years. Five years. Now, queens are living for less than two, yeah, one year. Yes, that's right. So can you talk about that, like the, the effects of these pesticides and how they affect both the drones and the queen? Yeah, so, so Graham, tell me um, how long you've been a beekeeper and how you know, your involvement with bees and your love of bees. I started beekeeping in 89 and I never had any problems at all until 98. But, but in terms of um, I, what I haven't mentioned, is, are we going to go on to the mites later? Yeah, if you want. Well, I, I kind of got involved in bees by accident. I, I lived in a beautiful old, old estate. An estate means a, an area of land that's been around since 1066 in England, you know, some some aristocrats captured this land in 1066 and it's been one area of farmland ever since and the whole country is made up of a mosaic of these estates so i was writing a lot about john muir and i edited several books about john muir and i got the chance the offer to go live in a, an estate that john muir used to visit as a child in dunbar a very beautiful green place with a forest and a river and its own beach and someone said do you want to rent this for I think it was 200 pounds a month which was peanuts you know it was much much less than I was paying in Edinburgh so um so I said wow yes I'll do that and um, while I was there there was an old gentleman um who you, there were no there were no through no cars no through traffic nothing like that so this old guy used to come around on Saturday morning and he had half a dozen beehives behind um the greenhouse so I asked him if he'd show me what this was about, and he was very relaxed about it. And um, so I used to watch him from a distance, you know, and then a few years later he died and the bees disappeared. And I, I missed them, and someone said, oh, there's some bees for sale, you know, about 30 miles away. So I went and bought these bees, which were very, very wild and stingy. You know, they were not at all good bees. They were stingy as hell. But I did learn to look after them eventually, and I learned that you could get gentle bees after a while. And I, I, I bred queens that were gentler, and, and it got better. 
But um, so I had no, there were no problems at all. Uh, beekeeping was dead simple. You didn't have to use any chemicals. Um, they were mainly getting wildflower honey and blossom honey. So they weren't going to any crops nearby. I didn't know anything about pesticides being used on crops. It had never occurred to me. And this was before neonics. Neonics were 1994 and you started in 89. They didn't come, but the neonics didn't get going in Britain until about 1998. They didn't really appear. And strangely enough, that was the year that Varroa arrived as well. And the interesting thing was that the Varroa arrived before the neonics. That's my recollection. And I, I suddenly found, you know, we got the beekeeping magazine and it said there were no Varroa in, in Scotland at all. And there was no need to worry about it. And they would let us know if someone discovered them and you know they were on the lookout. And then one day I went and I, I knew you could test for Varroa using an, you put these insecticidal strips in. I got 2000 Varroa in my hive straight away. I mean, the, the, the bottom board was black. You couldn't see any white paper. They were just, and yet the hive was healthy. It, was, it wasn't dying, it was collecting honey, it was doing okay. And obviously I treated, I did what you were supposed to do at that time, which was treat with a, a Bayer product, killed all, killed the Varroa and carried on. Was that question, was that, was that um, pesticide from Bayer, is that one of the ones that built super mites? It was. That made them resistant? It was? Okay. The first product which... There are two mysteries. One is how did Varroa get into Great Britain? Because Great Britain's an island, and in theory, it, there were no bee imports going on, no no entire colonies anyway. So uh, a lot of people suspect that Varroa were deliberately introduced mm -hmm. by somebody whose interest it was to introduce them. Immediately, Bayer said, oh, we've got a product for that. It's called Bayverol, and it's these pesticide impregnated plastic strips and you put them in the hive and it kills the varroa but it doesn't kill the bees so that was the only thing available to us we all started using that um and and it killed the varroa it killed 99 of the varroa it did but it, they became less effective with each passing year now the interesting thing about all of this is that the french had had varroa since 1968 so we got them in 1998. The French had had them since 1968. And there is not one single reference in any French beekeeping magazine or any scientific article talking about the loss of colonies due to Varroa. Varroa was a nuisance. It was a pain. But uh, they treated for it using organic acids. They used a thing called oxalic acid. And they found that even when Varroa were present in large numbers, generally speaking, the colony did not die. Right, so from 68 to 94, there are no records of mass bee deaths in France, no, no deaths from Varroa, no deaths from neonics. Soon, as soon as neonics arrived with Varroa, million colonies dead in one year. So... The implication of that is that uh, varroa without neonicotinoids are a nuisance and they're, and they're something you don't want to have and you have to deal with them in some way. But as soon as you add neonicotinoids to the mix, varroa become deadly. Well, and also they're a useful tool. They're a useful deflection tool at this point. That's the way they're used. Well, that's the narrative story. But So... Um, 
so anyway, we got Varua in 1998. And that same year, I was driving along a wheat field one day on the road. And I suddenly saw these little white pieces of card at the end of the wheat rows. And I stopped the car and got and I to look and it, and it, and they were typed. It was a, it was some sort of farming research thing that a local farm was doing, and it said like these ten drills are imidacloprid plus, and then it mentioned a fungicide. I didn't know anything about fungicides, so he said that's imidacloprid plus fungicide. These ten drills are clofianidin plus fungicide, and these ones are um, thiamethoxan plus fungicide. And um, and they were testing the wheat yield. So I'd never heard of any of these things, didn't know what they were, just sounded scary. And I went on the internet and uh, found out that the French had lost a million bee colonies a year since 1996, um, two or three years earlier. And, the, and they had this enormous legal and scientific fight and they had proved in court and in the university science debates that these chemicals were killing the bees in, in, in unimaginable numbers you know they said they were walking on carpets of dead bees so i then began to try and alert the beekeeping network as i as i explained before and found out that my information was not being welcomed by my own national association so anyway um <clears throat> i had been enjoying keeping bees and i i loved the fact that um it was a very relaxing hobby. I loved the fact that I learned so much more about ecology and nature by studying what the flowers they were going to and what the weather was like. And I loved the fact that I could give my friends and family an almost unlimited supply of honey without very much effort. You know, there wasn't much effort involved. And then suddenly I'm, I'm handling chemicals which are dangerous and I'm fighting off parasites that I don't that seem to be difficult to control. And everybody else is losing hives in large numbers. And uh, they were the hives were mainly dying in the winter. So I quickly for myself, when I read what the French had done, I quickly worked out what what I think is going on. And I'm convinced this is the case, which is that um, so I quickly worked out for myself what I think is going on with neonicotinoids. And that is an ordinary worker bee lives for six weeks. And it doesn't need a lot of food. It only needs food to fly back and forward to the flowers and bring the, bring the pollen and nectar back into the hive. A queen bee can live for five years. And when she's laying eggs at a rate of 1,500 to 2,000 a day, this is a very simple logic, she lays her own body weight in eggs every single day in May, June, July, August, right? If, if she doesn't eat her own body weight in food every day, she would literally shrink up and shrivel and die. So the bees are feeding her 24 hours a day, every single minute of every hour. They're feeding, 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 feeding. Uh, and I've never done a scientific estimate, but I would estimate that a queen bee is eating thousands of times more food than a worker bee in order to manufacture the eggs that she's got inside her. I mean, she has to inflate them. So if there is pesticide, if neonics are present in the, in the pollen and nectar the bees are bringing in at say three parts per billion, which is generally not enough to kill a bee outright, you know, they're not dropping down dead, but it's affecting them. The queen is actually taking that pollen and nectar and it's being fed to her in the form of royal jelly or whatever, and she's, she's eating thousands of times more pesticide 
than a worker bee uh, because she lives for four years, five years. And so this, one of the symptoms we began to notice was that I knew old guys who would say, oh, I've got a queen. She's, she's coming on five years old and she's still going really strong. She's great. And I'm going to breed some queens from her because she's so good. And then they would say, oh, well, yeah, my queens seem to be only lasting two years. And then I began to notice that I, I would breed a queen in May and she'd be laying eggs very happily and she'd have beautiful brood pattern. I'd come back in July and she was gone. I'd, I'd mark her and she was gone. The and the bees had superseded her. And the only logic was that she'd been affected by pesticides and the pesticides are neurotoxins. They attack the brain. So it, she, she must have been trembling on the comb or not, not able to lower herself into a cell to lay an egg correctly. And the bees notice that and they immediately kill her because they, they, they intuit that they cannot go into the winter with a defective queen. Right. So, so the pattern here is that very few people are able to keep queens alive for two years. A lot of them can't even keep them alive for one year. And that's, that's never happened in British beekeeping history going back hundreds of years. And I, I doubt it's ever happened in American beekeeping history either. So same thing with drones, right? Drones are also, uh, they're affected in their reproductive system. Is that correct? Or is that, it's got to be neurological as well? No, the re there's been recent science published only this month saying that um, it, they reckon it um, decreases the fertility of drone sperm by 50 to 60%. Yeah, yeah. But, but my own experience is that I had never seen drones die on the coma and I, I examined a hive yesterday and I found at least two or three hundred drones on a coma which had died in the act of emerging and that their little heads were sticking out of the cells they were fully colored so they were ready to hatch and they all had their tongues sticking out paralyzed tongues which is a classic sign of pesticide, pesticide yeah. poisoning yeah that's what it looks like what I've seen uh, pesticide always looks like uh, the tongues are sticking out and the bees are either if they're living or even they're, they're just brand newborns, they're writhing on the ground, just writhing. So, you know, as um, as many people have commented, we've gone from a situation where pesticides were relatively weak and they were relatively unusual and they were only used as a kind of fire, brig fire brigade reaction to a crisis in a farmer's field. You know, maybe... You, one, one year in three, he would need to use pesticides, and he might only use it on half a field. Now, 25 different pesticides are being applied to every single field of crops every single year, every season, year after year after year after year, which means that the entire landscape is completely saturated because they, th these pesticides persist in soil and water for on average, three to five years. And on some soils, they can persist for 19 years. So that means that... 19 years. 19 years. On clay soils, the half-life of clothianidin is 19 years, according to American research, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, and we're gonna need a, we're gonna need a good news break in a minute. <laughs> good news break, <laughs> so okay so the I, I know that this is not your your field of study but you've spoken about it um quite a bit um the the way that they travel into the water table affecting yeah. aquatic life can you talk to me about that please sure um 
the person who did the, the earliest research on how um, these insecticides were killing water life and contaminating the entire aquatic environment was um, a wonderful Dutch toxicologist called Hank Tenekes. And he, he, lives in, he lives in Zutphen in Holland. And he wasn't specifically a bee scientist. He's a brain cancer specialist of 40 years standing. He's very, very eminent. He worked for the Imperial Cancer Research Fund here in Britain. And his specialism was brain cancers, and particularly chemicals that cause brain cancer by attacking the nerve synapses, things like tobacco and um, dioxins, very dangerous things indeed. And he happened to read a paper, a scientific paper, about how this new family of insecticides were killing bees by attacking the nerve synapses. That's what they do. They stop nerve transmissions, which mean bees are unable to fly or navigate or sense things. You know, it's just like their brains are scrambled. So he realized or he intuited that this was a parallel mode of action. And he wrote a, a book which is available online called a Dis- uh, The Systemic Insecticides, A Disaster in the Making. And it made a big splash in Europe and various governments invited him to talk. Because he lives in Holland, Holland is the most pesticide contaminated place in all of Europe. It's a very small country with incredibly intense agriculture. They, they might take two or three crops out of one field in a year. And you've all seen the tulip fields with all the beautiful flowers. And they, they're, they're masters of making a, a, a profit out of the smallest area of land. So, so in Britain, for example, I don't think anybody in Britain grows any garden, um, you know, flats. You, you buy flats in a supermarket to take home and put your plants in your bedding. None of those come from Britain. They all come from Holland. They have, they have an almost, they have a monopoly. And all of our tulips come from Holland, all our tulip bulbs. And all of those are treated with neonics, correct? They're all treated with neonics. Crocus bulbs. Uh, tulip bulbs, lily bulbs, all saturated in neonics. So the, the innocent gardener goes along, the, you know, buys these lovely flower bulbs and sticks them in the garden, and they come in March when there's nothing else blooming, and the first creature that sees them is a bumblebee because they, ha- they come out of hibernation, and they go, wow, tulips, pollen, nectar, I'm in business. They go straight over to the pollen, they take it, it poisons them, and that colony never happens because the queen, the queen dies. So, um, so anyway, Hank realized that um, he didn't have to do the research because the research had already been done by the water, the national water companies have to provide feedback on what, how much contamination there is in the drinking water and the streams and the ditches and so on. And he just, he just brought it all together and the level of contam- contamination was terrible. It was all over. There wasn't an inch of Holland that didn't have neonicotinoids in the drinking water, in the in the pond water, in the streams, in the ditches. It was everywhere. What year was this that he did that? I think this was about 19... I can't remember. I think it might, it might have been about 2000 or 2002. 2000, so yeah. It was a long yeah. time ago. But what, what he correlated that with was, again, other people had already done the research, the, the amount of... Um, water life, you know, insects, invertebrates, little things swimming around in the water had crashed enormously, you know, 80, 90 percent. And 
those little things are the things which feed larger animals and particularly birds. A lot of birds pick plankton out of the rivers. So he then showed a correlation between neonicotinoid pollution everywhere, a drop in the number of tadpoles and little, little uh, caddis fly larvae, all the fly larvae that live in water as part of their life cycle, and a corresponding crash in bird populations. And all, and all the birds that were disappearing were insectivores. It wasn't the fish eaters were doing okay, the hawks were doing okay, um, the big birds, you know, the crows and stuff like that, they were doing okay. But all the little birds, the warblers, the um, skylarks, the, 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 the titmice family, what you call chickadees, they were just disappearing like snow off a bank. You know, they were just going. And, and in fact, a number of species have become extinct in Holland for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years. So the corn bunting is now extinct. It, it was here 20 years ago. It's gone. Uh, the horned lark, which is a kind of skylark, that's gone. And so he started to give slideshows about this and tell people about it. He was largely ignored, particularly by the official science community. They just ignored him completely. And he, he stopped getting work. He found it very, very hard to get work as a toxicologist because what he was saying was not acceptable. He's been proven completely right, but he's not made any income or money out of all this amazing research he did. Lots and lots of university people who came along 20 years later and said, oh, yeah, the insects are disappearing. Yeah, I want to thank you. Can I have a grant for that? He'd already done that 20 years earlier, you know, but they cashed, they cashed in big time and um, the whistleblower got nothing except um, he was shunned in the American sense, you know. Well, sorry, that pattern has now been verified in every country in Europe. And um, uh, three years ago, a German research group they, who have a nature reserve in a place called Aubryoc, the Aubryoc Nature Reserve. They, interestingly, had done a project way back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where they erected a big tent made of mesh, and they collected all the insects that flew into this tent every day of every week. And they trapped all the insects in a little vial of alcohol, and then at the end of every day, they would weigh them, and then they would spend hours and hours and hours teasing them apart and seeing what species were there, counting them up. It was very, very detailed work. So they, in the 50s when they did this, you know, there was many, many, many species on, every, on the nature reserve. And the, the weight of the insects was in kilos rather than in ounces, you know. Uh, and um, to their astonishment, that, well, they hadn't, they hadn't done it for about 10 years, I think, and in whatever it was, 2015, they decided, oh, we should, we should redo that experiment. They found that the, the weight of insects had dropped by 80%, and the species range had dropped by 70%. And, and to begin with, the, you know, the, uh, the official body said, oh, that's rubbish, that, can, that can't be true. It's not possible. How could you lose 80% of the insects in Germany in a nature reserve over a period of 30 years? So, so they then said, okay, okay, right. So we'll redo the experiment in 18 different nature reserves scattered all over Germany geographically. And bingo, exactly the same result. And then in America, um, a scientist called uh, Christy Morrissey up in Canada did very similar work in, um, in Canada with a, a famous scientist called Pierre Minot, who's a bird expert. They found that uh, 
American grassland birds have declined 50% in 30 years. We're talking hundreds of millions of birds here. They, they've just disappeared. And the reason is there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to eat. It's all been killed. They're reducing the countryside and the rural areas to a sterile gravel. Yeah. So I wish we could say that we've got Monsanto and Bayer and Syngenta and BASF and Dow. I wish we could say that we've got them on the run. And the good news with the Monsanto verdicts that have just come up and that will likely continue um, is that people are finally recognizing that what they trusted, which is their food, is filled with poison and that it's not trustworthy, that the institutions that have controlled our food, uh, our governments, our regulatory agencies around the world, this is global, uh, have been influenced unduly and with a lot of money by these guys in big cars, by these industries, and that the layers of their influence goes all the way down the structure, even to the beekeeper associations with I've experienced and you've experienced uh, firsthand. So um, I'm, I'm fascinated with what we trust and what we don't look at because we're just busy trusting. You know, it's easier for the human brain to trust. You can't be on on five alarm alert all the time no. without losing your 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 ability to think <laughs> it's extremely it's extremely wearing i mean it is wearing there's, there's a great american uh, biologist and ecologist called aldo leopold you may have heard of him he wrote a very famous book called sand county almanac which inspired thousands of ecologists and he's a very beautiful writer and he said one of the famous quotes is to be an environmentalist is to live in a world of wounds. Uh, John Muir said, who fought to save the giant redwoods and did save the giant redwoods, you know, they were going to cut down everything. And he saved the last half million. They cut, they cut down 11 million. He saved the last half million. And Muir said at the end of his life, I've got to remember this, he said, we cannot expect the fight we have fought to ever end. He said, he said, the battle we have fought in is the eternal fight between good and evil, and it will never end. And it's our job to keep fighting. He, he wanted, Muir hated having to be a campaigner. He, he just wanted to be um, in the mountains enjoying the ecstasy of being in Yosemite, place like this. And, but he, his friend said to him, nobody else is going to do it. You're the man who's got the words and the writing ability to convince millions of people to, to preserve the giant redwoods or preserve Yosemite. And, um, and he did, but um, it is the fight between, it is a moral fight, that's what it is. And the people who are on the other side know exactly what they are doing. And their vision is to enslave the whole world to their poison industry and the seed industry they want to control the global food supply down to the nth you know degree uh it's not it's not good it's what i believe too and it's it's taken me a long time and and many sleepless nights just thinking about what kind of human could do this like what kind of human is so to me it's suicidal it's completely suicidal and i don't understand that but i think that there's a part of that in all of us in the addictions that we have like whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or food 
or whatever. There's something in all of us that drives us. And I, I think understanding that humans operate along a scale between empathy and, and, and sociopath, and that, you know, there's a certain type of personality that's driven to control or to be a leader. And they tend to be along the narcissistic and sociopathic side of, of the human um, scale. Whereas the reluctant leaders like uh, Muir are the ones that, um, you know, if we could find them and follow them because they're the ones that are speaking the truth as opposed to the ones that are demanding to be the leaders because they're, you know, that's part of their personality traits. It just seems like we would just sort of hijack the, the narrative and the control away from the people who have no business being in, in control. I mean, some biologists have pointed out that um, human beings evolved in very small tribal family groups. And for probably a million years, our, our ape ancestors never lived in a group of more than 30 um, related individuals. So they were able to develop empathy for that group. But anything beyond that, like the people who lived in the next valley, were a long, long way down the empathy um, scale. So the, the tragedy is we've gone from living in family groups of 30 to 50. I mean, even the American Indians lived in small family groups. They only came together to hunt buffalo or to have marriage fairs or whatever once or twice a year because the, you couldn't have a thousand people in one area and sustain the game. You know, the game wouldn't sustain that many people. So, so it's very, very recent. You know, it's 2,000, 3,000 years since we began living in cities of 5,000, 10,000, and now millions of people. But, we're, but our brains are still hardwired to look after our family and cousins and loved ones and anybody else. Well, and maybe that's the way that we're controlled too, because, you know, these corporations have think tanked every step. I, I just remembered something important that we haven't talked about that is important and, and also powerful. Um, how can I put this right? So when, I'm, when I was thinking about how neonicotinoids work, there were a number of scientific studies that came out around 2008, I think they came out. There was a Frenchman called Cédric Allot, who had a team of people working in the National Agricultural Institute in France. And he found out, he, he found that um, he took like 200 beehives and every single beehive in the world has a fungal disease called Nozema. And it's, it's in every beehive. It's, it's in the same way that you and I have cold sore viruses, but we don't get cold sores for years on end, maybe. And then, and then, then we have a very stressful work experience or we lose our job or something. Suddenly we're full of cold sores or shingles. And that's because our immune system has gone down and the virus, which was there all along, goes, hey, I'm going to breed and out it comes. So what Alo said was he took these 200 colonies and he, expo he exposed them both to Nozema. He, you know, to make sure that they definitely had it, he gave them syrup with Nozema fungus in it. And the, uh, but one of the groups of hives, he also gave them neonicotinoids before he did that. Every single one of the hives that was exposed to neonics and Nozema died of Nozema. The other hives, which were just exposed to Nozema, didn't die at all. 
because and and so he hypothesized that what had happened was that he didn't know how it worked, but he said, I think neonics destroy the immune system. And bees have a very weak immune system. It's not like we have a liver which can detoxify things. Bees don't have a liver. So they're, they have a strong social immune system. They groom each other and clean each other all the time, but they don't have an individual immune system that's good. So, because they only live six weeks and evolution decided it's not worth giving an animal that lives six weeks strong immune system. So my, and so that experiment was then replicated in America quite independently by Jeffrey Pettis at the USDA labs in Beltsville uh, in Maryland and Dennis Van Engelsdorp, who was his research assistant. And they found exactly the same thing. And they got, re they got so excited. They went to a big international conference, AP Mondia in Italy, and they broadcast to the world. We found the answer. We now know, we now know why neonics are killing bees on this massive scale. It's because they destroy the immune system. And uh, immediately after they said that, they both were sort of put into quarantine and both issued retractions later on saying, oh, no, it's not the neonics, but uh, that's another story. But my analogy is that it's like AIDS. Um, I remember watching a documentary about how AIDS exploded in San Francisco back in the 80s. And to begin with, the... The, the director of public health said she had no idea what was going on because she had all these young men coming in. She didn't know they were gay. She had all these young men and they were dying of really strange diseases that like tub uh, tuberculosis, hepatitis, a rare cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. There were all these really weird things happening all over the city and hundreds and hundreds of young men were dying. And she gradually, or the scientists gradually pieced together, they haven't got an immune system. And, and, and AID, the AIDS virus was crippling the immune system. Well, it's a direct analogy of what happens with neonicotinoids. They destroy the immune system, and then whatever pathogen is around, and that can be nosema, it can be Israeli paralytic virus, it can be form wing virus. These are all common viruses and bacteria which are in every hive. Suddenly, your, your entire hive dies of deformed wing virus. And, and so the beekeeper thinks, God, I've got a lot of deformed wing virus in my hive. It's, that's, that's the wrong way of looking at it. The, the killer was deformed wing virus, but the, the person who opened the door and let the killer in was neonics. Yeah. And, um, and that was confirmed by an even more important piece of science. There was a Swiss research team led by a man called DePrisco, which is a very, very famous study. And he actually made a gold science study where he was able to prove at the molecular level, and that's apparently the gold standard in science. He didn't just demonstrate it in the field. He was able to analyze the bees' blood and genes in the lab, and he showed that um, the amount of viral DNA that was produced was increased a thousandfold if you added neonics to the equation. And, and, if, and if the amount of deforming virus goes up by a thousand fold that hive's dead you know so just going all the way back to the beginning this was a product that shell developed well we don't know that we don't know that that's an inference i mean they had this world beating product on their hands and yet they chose not to launch it they chose not to do it now what we don't know why that is but one suggestion is they thought well we're just going to get the worst public relations reaction in the world we're going to kill everything well no, but, but 
But Bayer just said, leave, leave the public relations to us. We'll take care of that. We haven't talked about how Varroa is being beaten into people's heads in America as the... That's our next conversation. Okay, right, right. Yeah, yeah, this is this is enough for now. You want to end on a positive note? I saw um, you post on Facebook just recently some amazingly beautiful flowers. I, did you call it Scottish gorse? The yellow is gorse, and the pink is called sea thrift which grows on rocks on cliffs normally. I know it grows in little clumps, so to see it in huge swathes is very unusual. Oh, sorry, the pictures I sent you were uh, a place called St. Abbs National Nature Reserve, which is like the equivalent of Point Reyes, I suppose, in um, California. And it's um, there are enormous swathes of yellow gorse, which uh, if you've never seen it, it's a beautiful plant. It's very good for bees. It, when the sun gets warm, it reeks of coconut oil. So do you, um, do you find that, um, are there bumbles on there and natives? Oh, yeah. It's great for bumblebees and, and solitary bees and so on. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic plant for that. And it blooms for about 11 months of the year. It doesn't stop blooming. It just keeps going. Uh, but on a hot day when I was there, the, the actual air is perfumed with coconuts. All you can smell is coconut. In Scotland. <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. That sounds lovely. That's how, I mean, the pictures were just amazing. I just thought they were some of the most beautiful flowers I've seen. Well, it is. It's And there's an entire valley that's got about, I would say, 200 acres of yellow gorse and quite a few acres of that pink flower, which is called sea thrift. Um, if you just sit there and be quiet, all you can hear is birdsong. You can't hear any cars. You can't hear any airplanes. It's just, um, it's just nature. It's fantastic. It's about, it's about 15 miles from my house. Oh, you're a lucky dude. <laughs> I'm here by choice. It's not luck. <laughs> I'm in retreat from the city. I moved from Edinburgh, which is 50 miles away, um, to be here because Edinburgh is like, it's just like London now. It's a mass tourism city with endless amounts of traffic and people and just non-stop you know sounds like san francisco it's not as bad as san francisco but it, well it, it's a little more controlled than san francisco it's 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 only five hundred thousand people so it's a bit smaller um no it's it's globalization yeah there's too many people but that's another topic okay right all, all right. right graham thank you so much as usual you've filled my brain and um um Oh, it's going to explode. Yeah. It's <laughs> I'm just so I'm glad you're there. We've been talking for two hours. I know, and I gotta go. <laughs> Have a nice day. Ciao. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening.